Welcome to the CDC Podcast, episode 13. This time around, I'm your man behind the scenes, Eric Swain. A little while ago, Zach Alexander, along with our own leader-in-arms Chris Ligman and up-and-comer Cameron Nutzelman, were driven to come together and talk Tomb Raider. He then searched around for a home for this discussion, and we were happy to host it here. Enjoy. discussing Tomb Raider, a game where a hero wakes up on an island and must investigate its mysterious inhabitants before the windfish awakens. That's the right game, right? Yeah, no, I think that's the, uh, and at the end, the windfish wakes up and there's a fully upgraded recurve bow, right? Yes, yes. That's the game we played? Yes. So today with us, we have Cameron Kunzelman, who blogs at This Cage is Worms, as well as contributes to Critical Distance. Hi. Hello. And we also have Chris Ligman, who does basically everything else for Critical Distance and is also now working at Gama Sutra. Yes, it's mine. All mine. (laughs) You've been practicing your evil laugh. No, that's just natural. We're talking about Tomb Raider. This is a game that's been a part of a long-standing series why did you pick this game up? Were you a fan of the series? Did you see it just laying around? Were you really interested by the reboot? Considering that a large part of my job is reading what other people say about video games, when something gets picked up and talked about an awful lot, that tends to generate curiosity. And sometimes I can just kind of enjoy a game vicariously through other people, but this was a case where it seemed as though someone was dancing around some manner of the subject matter that I wasn't getting from just reading other people's discussion of it. Actually, I wasn't the one that purchased it. My ex-husband, as I like to call him, Ben Abraham, bought it for me. So thank you, husband. So I played it and looked into whether it was actually measuring up to what people were saying about it. And it wasn't and it was, as everything is. And I'm making it sound incredibly boring, but it was actually sort of a boring game, so that sort of follows. Oof. All right. How about you, Cameron? Why'd you pick oh, up the game? That's, that's so brutal. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad that if we're the, setting if up the, the worst, stakes here. At the if the worst you know. thing I say about a game is that it's boring, boring. No, that's, that's pretty charitable. Yeah. No, so the reason I pick up the game, I, I, I'm not particularly a fan of the Tomb Raider series, and not for any particular purpose. I just never, you know, had never really played them before. I played the original Tomb Raider way, 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 way back in like 1998 or something. And so I picked up the, the new game because, so everyone was telling me that it was a perfected version of Uncharted. And I'd never played any of the Uncharted games either. And so I was like, well, I'll, I'll go in for this one. So, like, if this is the perfected version of that type of gameplay, I'll just play this game, and then I can skip the Uncharted games. And kind of brutally, I've I've gone back and played Uncharted 1 since playing Tomb Raider, and I'm like, yes, I, this is a total waste of my time. So that's it, right? I'm not particularly a fan. There was no reason to play it other than it was a 
new release that was fun. I also got it for like $25 on Amazon when it was on sale. All right. Yeah, I've never played a Tomb Raider game before. I have played Uncharted. I did not get very far in Uncharted at all. I think I got like maybe a quarter of the way through the first game and I just gave up. But for Tomb Raider, actually it was a Tom Chick piece that made me pick it up because he basically said, hey, the levels are not super constrained. They're actually kind of open and there are crazy challenges where you go find 10 collectibles and during that time, you're just kind of in this very beautiful space and he talks about the sound design and how he was kind of noticing things he'd never noticed before because of these challenges where you go in so to me that sounded like a video games video game and i really like collectibles and i really like semi open world stuff so i also did not buy this game my friend finished it and said yeah it was pretty good and handed it off to me so i actually just borrowed his copy for a while and I actually ended up really enjoying it, much more than I thought I would. So, Chris, have you played Uncharted before? I have not. Uncharted never really caught my attention as something that I would be interested I mean, for the same reason that Tomb Raider never really caught my interest. Like, if any Tomb Raider true, fan, true fans are, like, listening to this podcast, they might as well stop now, because it seems like all three of us are sort of coming to this as newbies. And... <laughs> oh, no, that's not true, though, because I've seen the movie. <laughs> I think I saw part of it and walked I mean that was the thing it's, I mean I really envy the female gamers who are like yeah she was an empowering figure for me growing up because I was always really really turned away by the sort of the aesthetic of Tomb Raider and how much of a cult of fanishness she seemed to attract from a certain kind of hormonal teenage boy and then leading into the Uncharted series where it just seemed more the same. It's just like, yeah, bro, let's shoot some stuff in the face, bro. Beautiful environments, bro. Not really my bag at all. But yeah, um, no, never played Uncharted. All right. So end of the day, yes or no, did you like Tomb Raider? Chris? I didn't like the gameplay. I had severe issues with the narrative. But I found something at least thematically redeeming about it. So I would say on a actual 1 to 10 scale as opposed to the gamer 1 to 10 scale I would rate it about a 6 which you know is the kiss of death I suppose if you're reading this in a game mag but for me it was like yeah it was enjoyable alright Cameron end of the day like what, it or not like it I want to flip it back actually so Zach what what did you think I want to hear your answer do you, do you like it or not like it using the patented man to machine game review scale I give it a 9 out of 10, which is the second worst score a video game can get. Ooh. Because it was, I had so much fun playing it. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I really just barreled through it. I, I can't remember the last game I actually finished, let alone the last uh, third-person cover shooter that I finished. Uh, and it was, you know, I just blew right through it. It was great. I love collecting stuff. But Hang uh, on, are we really calling this a cover shooter? I mean, really? Oh, there were chest-high walls everywhere. There were. Yeah, but you didn't stick to any of them. They were just kind of there, and she would pop out of them at random, whatever, anyway. Yeah, you had you had some trouble with the uh, controls. I was playing it on PC, which is, you know, uh, what anyone should play on. Oh, okay. <laughs> Platform warrior. <laughs> but right. uh, it's not that. It's just, but it's definitely true that this particular game was not designed with PC controls in mind, apparently. No, absolutely not. So I, I really like the game, like, a whole, whole lot, and I think it might be the perfect video game. Yeah, totally. Um, That's I had, how I feel about it. I have very, very, sure. like, I haven't, 
I haven't written anything about the game. I haven't really read anything else either. I mean, I've looked through a few of these things, right? So I read Maddie Myers' uh, review as soon as I finished the game. I read this is the essay I didn't want to have to write about Tomb Raider posts that we'll probably get to later. Uh, but I haven't, you know, I, I haven't really been involved in the critical commentary, but my just gut feeling coming out of it is I, you know, I think that in the the sort of possibility space of games, right? Like what games can do and what they're really good at. I think that Tomb Raider hits all of the high notes in a really, really great way, right? Does it mean it's a, you know, particularly wonderful narrative? No, not necessarily. But I'm not sure that games are really good at narrative, right? I'm not sure that that's their, uh, their strength. And so... Um, I don't know. I really, really, really liked it coming out of it. All Did right. we play the same game? I'm just, I'm just curious. Yeah, I think so. Wait, Cameron, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm alarmed. I played it on PC, but I played it with a controller. Okay. Um, I played, I played it, it with a PS3 controller emulating a 360 controller. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I played it on a 360, and yeah. All right. So let's let's start talking about the plot, the narrative. So one thing that I think would be really fun is in your mind right now. Just try and think of two characters from their sh- from the ship that Lara is originally on, and think about what their names are. Oh, I have no idea. Like no, <laughs> uh, white nerd and yep. angry African American woman. Oh, okay. White nerd is Alex. Okay. Gruff captain is Roth. I, yes. I don't know. Yes. All right. Woman is uh oh the, the... Reyes. Reyes. Yeah, yeah, okay. And And then, then, of course, uh, the damsel in distress slash Lara's girlfriend is Sam. Oh, I totally want to talk about this, Chris. I totally want to talk about your reading of Sam and Lara, because I think it's super interesting. (laughs) Um, It's the only reading. Are you kidding? (laughs) Old guy who sacrifices himself. Oh, yeah. That guy. Who I didn't even realize... I didn't realize he was in the game until he showed up to sacrifice himself. I'd totally <laughs> forgotten that he was... That I didn't know that he had been in the beginning. I think there are some other people, too. Oh, yeah. There was the Hawaiian who yeah, was the spiritual... The yeah. smir- spiritual guy? Yeah, that was that was a nasty bit of shorthand, I really felt like. And then the, the skeezy, totally not going to betray us guy. Right. <laughs> the academic. The academic, who... I, I really thought we were going to see Die Horribly as some sort of a, a, a redemption, but nope. no such luck. Nope. Okay, so I guess my point there was there, there are a whole bunch of characters on this ship, but really the only one you care about is Lara and maybe Sam because Lara screams her name like 20 times. Chris, do you have any? So Chris, fill us in on, on what you think is going on with Lara oh and Sam here. Well, it's not just what I think. Uh-huh. Uh, if you if you read some of, or at least one of the interviews uh, with uh, Rihanna Pratchett, the lead writer of the game, for those who don't know, uh, she talks about that not necessarily being a intended undercurrent, but she could absolutely see it that way as well. That there is something romantic going on between the two of them, and there is at some point some sort of journal entry where Sam, you know, says like, "Yeah, we went and met a bunch of cute boys on this trip," but it seems so ham-fisted. And meanwhile, you spend the entire game literally just racing around trying to save this girl. And, of course, the damsel in distress thing is kind of played out as sort of like this heterosexual, like, male fantasy of, like, you know, Mm. getting the girl and all that stuff. And so there is the argument to me that that since you're filling Lara's shoes, you're filling kind of like the male role of being the hero in that regard, etc., but even then, it's just like she, you, she carries her princess style over a threshold at one point. I mean, come on. 
Right. And I guess part of that is there's not really much else going on there. Like the game says, oh, they're friends. They went to college together. Even though there's this moment, which I really love, where Lara first makes it into like the first shelter that she has and she finds Sam's camera and she's reviewing this documentary, which is ostensibly the reason Sam is on this trip with them. Sam is filming her conversation with Lara and you see a little bit of Lara there, but you don't really see why Lara and Sam are friends or together. It's just kind of a, again, shorthanded, yes, of course we're best friends. Why else would we be on this journey together? So there's not really a lot of other things there. So mm. it's very, it was very interesting. You you said that just as I was, you said that on Twitter while I was still playing through the game. And I did get to that journal entry where it was like, specifically, oh, we went out to meet a bunch of cute boys, but Lara wasn't really interested. Uh, <laughs> the implication being that Lara had her nose in the books. She was not interested in like human interaction. She was really too nerdy to go out and socialize with men. But I, I had your voice in my head when I was reading that. And I thought that was kind of amusing. Well, I don't know. This seems to so- sort of come up with, uh, it's a sort of a leitmotif in, I think, certain people's writings that even if they don't intend it, it just seems to come out that way again and again. And with Rihanna Pratchett, I mean, there's this story, but then if you go back to Mirror's Edge, which she wrote as well, you see almost the sort of same thing going on between Faith, female lead, and another female character in the game. So... I don't want to project too far, but she writes, you know, really compelling female friendships that you can interpret in a way that is a bit sort of a querying of the reading that is really interesting, in my opinion. Right. And it's definitely happening. Well, actually, oh, I didn't know she wrote Mirror's Edge. I just put it together Mm. that there are both games with female protagonists. But you you had the point about there still needs to be a male role in it because... At some point, it's going to be a man playing this game, and so they need to have the whole damsel in distress thing. But also, you know, there's just a huge lack of any other sort of queer character. So, like, what other video, what other AAA game would even, you know, has a woman protagonist and then has a woman protagonist that also has a close friend who is the goal you're trying to achieve? Hmm. Mirror's Edge. I mean, there aren't an awful lot of female protagonists, period. And when they are, I mean, there are so many layers of... Yes. And I think we're also just cued to kind of read it that way nowadays. I think with the ascendancy of fan and queer readings and just, but just the rapid ascendancy of gay rights within popular culture kind of gets it to the point where even those say, you know, 10 years ago might not have looked at that and gone, yeah, there's something going on there. Now it's almost expected. Sure. Well, actually, I was just reading an article about the Supernatural fandom. Supernatural is a show about two brothers who are played by extremely handsome actors. And there's also an extremely handsome angel that comes into play. A lot of the fans ship those two characters. And the phrase that they used was not one I had heard before. But it's a very interesting phrase. No, (laughs) no. The phrase was queer baiting, where you kind of intentionally or unintentionally have these subtexts in the show, and you want your gay fans, you want your queer fans to support the show, and so you might drop a breadcrumb here or there, but you'll never officially acknowledge it. You'll never put it into like a main position. You'll never bring it up to the top because then you'd be doing something risky. So the term is queer baiting to kind of imply that you do these ambiguous things almost on purpose to drag along a very specific audience. It's just interesting seeing Tomb Raider in that light as well. Mm. So, Lara's development as a character. The game is supposed to be uh, a survivor is born, and in case you don't get that, it's written in big letters at the end of the game. So, did you, did anyone buy into that, not buy into that, find that Lara had not changed by the end of the game? Well, 
I think that being a survivor is definitely a role that is played out in the game, but I don't think that Lara is actually the survivor in question. Or rather, I think she and Sam both fill that role in a way. Okay. Cameron? I mean, I, I don't know, right? Like, Sam didn't murder, a, you know, a million Sam? people. And, she and survived? I mean, right, like, but I think that right, there are I mean, two specific I... sort of valences here of survive, right? Like, on one hand, there's the survival of the conflict itself, and yeah, right. that totally matters. That's that is significant in and of itself. But there's also like the killed people to survive, killed animals to survive, got a big piece of rebar through your body, woke up in a body pile, fought a golem, right? Like all these different things that I think are sort of qualitatively set these two modes of survival, uh, you know, apart, right? Yeah, that was fucking torture porn. Um, no, absolutely. I, I don't have any... Right, like the, the particular kinds of violence that are shown in the game right. are disgusting, right? Like... And well, quite and on purpose, too, I think, right? And I here's know. the thing, though. All the physical violence, and even the the scene of the... Should we just, you know, include the trigger warning now? So, even the scene where there's... I mean, very close to the starter, obviously, and that was the one that was first shown to us at E3 last year, and there was a whole kerfuffle over that, of this sort of near-miss, uh, you know, rape-slash-sexual-assault scene... Uh, even that didn't really affect me the way that Sam screaming in the final battle did because she's off screen the entire time and you just hear this blood curdling scream that's coming through just you know from the side from the from your side speakers uh and the mind of course fills that with you know, whatever it can uh, whatever sort of like creative imagination that it has. And in my case, especially in the context of well, spoiler warnings inside a trigger warning is making an awful lot of sense. So at that point, she's being in my point of view, kind of symbolically raped. Um, and that is all going on while you are playing as Laura, just gunning down one dude after another dude after another dude. And to me, that was the cathartic survivor moment in that one person is enduring trauma while the other is fighting through trauma. Hmm. Sure. No, I think that's a totally... I, and I, I, well, okay, so like one, yeah, I think that's a great read. Um, but two, right, like I didn't even remotely have that experience. Partially, I, right, I play on like a kind of terrible uh, speaker setup, so that might be involved, right, that everything kind of gets uh, compressed down into one kind of noise. Uh, it's also, I died a lot during that. <laughs> and I think by the time that I like actually, you know, made it through the whole process, um, I was just so focused on, you know, this is where these enemies come from, uh, that I had blocked out any of the sensory kind of, uh, stuff. So yes, might yeah, I don't know. So going back to the development stuff, like more explicitly, so I, th I think there are a couple of different ways that the development as a character kind of exposed itself. And I think in one way, there is this very like mechanical sense of you have a skill tree and you can't unlock the finishing moves until you've killed enough people. And they abstract it away by saying, well, it's XP and technically you can get XP by murdering deer or raiding supply crates. But in all practicality, it is murdering people and the amount of XP that you need to get to that level where you are a badass and uh, putting air quotes around that you need to murder a whole bunch of people and so that, that was kind of one way that they showed this arc of 
her growth. But there's also, I mean, I think they did a job of putting some dialogue in there as well, where at the beginning, she's kind of challenging the course that they're taking. She thinks, oh, this has to be right here. We can't follow the course everyone else is taking. And she kind of poses it hesitantly. People are shouting at her and Roth kind of steps in and says, well, look, we trust you. We're going to do what you say. But it's really Roth who's the one pushing for that. And in contrast, towards the end, she is going to hijack this boat and take it up to the temple where Reese wants to just get off the island, which is not going to work at all. And Lara knows it's not going to work. And Lara is very stern and specific about this she says i'm taking that boat and i'm going up there and you can follow me or you won't but this is what's happening and this is how it's happening and reese who previously was is has been shown to be kind of argumentative you mean uh, reyes right yeah sure right because <laughs> i'm thinking reese you mean the guy from terminator yeah i i often confuse this game with terminator right yeah and I also don't really know how to pronounce your name because I skip through all the journal readings. I read faster than they speak. No, so. I feel you. I was right there with you. <laughs> so, you know, they, they did put some dialogue in there to just kind of demonstrate her assertiveness. But at the same time, the grunts you make while prying open a supply box in the first hour of the game are the same exact grunts that you make after 20 hours of doing this. So there was a little bit of grunting and squealing that didn't exactly go away, even though uh, Lara has otherwise become very comfortable with this role of saying, you know, I'm coming to get you, I'm that stuff. So that's, that's what I got from it. And the reason I'm not going to just kind of say that the plot was forgettable or bad is because those things did kind of leave an impact on me. They did. I did feel like I was witnessing some sort of growth in terms of Lara, both in terms of how the game was playing, as well as kind of the way that other characters were reacting to her. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I agree, right? Like, on, on, I don't think it's entirely successful, right? And I think they, like, picked their battles as far as, like, where development time went and, and as far as, you know, how we're going to make these things work, right? And so, like, when you have this sort of the same grunt or whatever that you're talking about, right, that she doesn't get physically stronger or something like that yeah i mean i think that's what's going on with the game and but at the same time right i kind of feel like even the sort of bare bones bad effort right what i would say you know an idea that doesn't get fully developed is still better than a lot of other stuff right like i like the sort of subtlety of it and it's not that subtle but it's also not you know the sledgehammer to the face that was spec ops or something like that right right it's Freaking you know speaking iterative. of spec ops sure oh no are we just going to go through this phase now where every single AAA game or like double A game, maybe in a case like this in Tomb Raider and Spec Ops, is going to make allusions to Apocalypse Now and Heart of Darkness? Yes. Because I swear to freaking Cosmos, that moment in there where she drops into that river of blood and she comes up all slow like like Martin Sheen, it's like, are you freaking kidding me? Honestly, that you had to go there. You couldn't go without that one little shot. Why? Okay, sorry, I'm done. I So I've never seen Apocalypse Now, and I read Heart of Darkness once in like 11th grade. I don't remember any of the details from that, so I had no idea that's where that shot was from. I'm I knew pretty sure it's not shot. in Heart of Darkness, but <laughs> no, no, they, they love pulling out <laughs> that shot in fucking everything. Actually, I don't think it was in Spec Ops The Line, but yeah, no, apparently this is a trend we're going to see now. I mean, it's it's something about core text, right? Like... You can kind of depend, right? Because Zach says, you know, I, I read Heart of Darkness in the 11th grade, right? Like, there's something about these, these sort of 
weird public education universals that you can kind of depend on, right? So you can depend on Heart of Darkness. You can depend on someone having a little bit of familiarity with like these, you know, once again, sort of sledgehammer themes of something like The Great Gatsby or To Kill a Mockingbird, right? Like, I, I think that when we see video, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but as we see video games trying to smarten up, and that's in huge quotation marks, because I think that games are already pretty smart, and we don't have to have these sort of pretensions to be novels or whatever. But as we see this happening, I think we're going to just see these weird sorts of, you know, public education universals just being ham-fisted put in, right? So when the development team gets together, and they're like, well, what's the imagery we can use? And they're like, well, everyone here has seen, you know, X movie. Everyone here has seen Transformers, or whatever, right? Um, <laughs> we'll just insert that shot, because it makes sense, right? Hmm. And that's kind of, like, really sad, but on the other hand, like... If someone is trying okay. to aspire to cinematic greatness by aping Transformers, you're already in trouble. I don't know. I'm I'm the big Michael... I'm a huge, unabashed Michael Bay defender. Glad you're that's on the so other cool. side of the country? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I think there's a more generous way to make Cameron's argument. Instead there's of saying it's a public school universal, I would say that they express themes which we find very common and we can really understand, like the breakdown of civilization in sure, sure, sure. the heart of a isolated jungle with no jackets and a maniacal cult leader. Which kind of brings me to my next point. What oh, wait, 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 wait. Sorry, just oh, okay. really quickly. I'm not trying to say that in a disparaging way. <laughs> like, <laughs> like they, I, it sounds like I am. But, like, I think that that's, like, right? So, like, there's there's some reason that we're all reading Heart of Darkness, right? And, like, it, you know, that it's accessible or whatever to a certain age group. And that's probably a good thing. And I'm kind of happy to see that being applied to games. So I don't take Public School Universal to be, like, me being like, oh, oh you guys. But anyway, yeah, sorry, sure. go ahead. So this kind of brings me to my next point, which is what is the deal with Matthias? A, I really hated the voice acting on Matthias. <laughs> I was, I, it was horrible. And B, the game ends with him giving a speech about <laughs> asking who the real monster is because you killed a bunch of samurai who are coming at you with swords. And that is the kind of ridiculous stuff that just drives me crazy, partially because of that, like, spec ops sledgehammer although right well no i, I mean speaking of overused lines i mean that one goes far before spec ops right there oh, totally. and i don't think we i don't think we can even say that tomb raider and spec ops had some sort of relationship going on because for the most part they were in development at the same time i'm pretty sure yeah but that that line actually made its way into uncharted as well there's a boss fight now of course there, well, it's in fucking everything that's the point it's one of those things that needs to be fucking retired 10 years ago yeah i don't i don't even understand why you would put it in there at this point and then i mean i guess at the end of it you do the iconic question mark tomb raider thing and have two pistols that you shoot the guy with and i found that extremely unsatisfying and then I don't even remember how you get rid of the spirit. Is it like a cutscene? Do you shoot the spirit? How do you no, get rid of him? I think it just goes away. I think you just shove her aside or something. I don't. Yeah, know. Yeah, I, I don't. I think None it was of us just remember you know, this. hand waved away. Hold on, I'll look at it on YouTube. <laughs> okay. Continue talking. Yeah. So was there some secret deal with Matthias? There's one journal entry. I went through and found all the journal entries, by the way. But there's one journal entry where someone says, "Oh, this preacher Matthias is here," and the only thing I could really get from that was he was on the island with the Japanese researchers, and that's how he kind of figured out the whole Himiko thing, but I don't know if that's actually supported by anything else in the game. Did anyone else pick up on anything regarding Matthias? Um, no. It's probably there somewhere in the lore, but do we care? Yeah, I mean... Uh, no, I, I mean, I have no idea, right? Like, I... 
my care about the mythology of the island I don't, I don't know i was going to think of something clever to say there's nothing i don't care like i just don't even remotely care about any extra information in this game or in most games honestly i i'm a very particularly you know sort of agnostic about that kind of thing sure if you have to tell me in long form text or in a voiceover that i'm you know <laughs> while i'm shooting flying you know i'm flying from sky island to sky island or whatever i i don't care uh so sorry to to jump back two seconds so what happens is that the spirit is transferring from like the corpse body into into sam and laura takes her her torch and put and stabs it you know like stake to the heart and it burns so that's how you divest yourself of that you know this sort of critical tool from this game and then you take up the second pistol and that's how the uh, the game ends. All right. So that beautiful. Sure is an ending. It is so mm, so good. Yeah, I also I agree that you know the mythology of the island was a little a little patchwork. I really liked the artifacts and stuff, but actually one of the things that I really enjoyed was I I mainlined the game. I went through all the scenario stuff, the main quest, whatever you want to call it, and then afterwards went back to some of the locations to pick up all the collectibles that I missed for my shiny achievements. And actually, the enemies do repopulate, but they repopulate with new dialogue once you once you go back. And some of them actually have like very interesting or touching or strange conversations. I found a guy teaching another guy to play chess. I found a guy discussing his stew recipe. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it was great. Cool. And I discovered a guy saying like, yeah, you know, I had to shoot him. He just wouldn't shut up about that stupid Himiko shit. And oh, that's in that's not post game at all. That's definitely in the original. That's definitely in the original. All right, yeah. it might be a place that I missed. It was really interesting because you know, I found it very humanizing. I found the conversations to be like, oh, you know, these are just guys hanging out on this island. Like it sucks, but they're kind of resigned to it. And there's a crazy guy who will kill you if you disagree with them. So whatever, let's make some homebrew. Let's get drunk. Like let's have. A reasonable time with this and then because they're enemies i have to run up behind them and gun them down without even slowing down uh otherwise they will start shooting me so at, at one point i actually felt a little bit more collect connected to the solari uh than i did to my actual shipmates who are not present for most of the game talk to you over radio like cheer you once and uh then you order them around and they betray you and you betray them or whatever that's what the people on the island are called. They're called the Solari. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't. I never. Oh, anyway, sorry, Chris. Go ahead. Oh, I mean, like, and I think this kind of like goes back to the whole Matthias thing with like the so who's the real monster here sort of thing. It's just like it's not as though you. It's I mean, at least something like Dishonored. You know, you have the option of going about things in a non-lethal manner. Here it was just like, I mean, there is one instance early on in the game where, you know, there's like the can we talk this out sort of thing, and then nope, it reverts right back to violence. And as much as you give, you know, however many soldiers, like their little bits, as soon as you trigger their awareness and they're on you, all that personality just goes right out the window and you're facing the same four or five dudes over and over and over. Right. And that kind of leads into one of my complaints about the combat, which is the worst part of the combat, and you could go the entire game avoiding it, but there's an achievement for it, so whatever. You can engage in melee combat, where you use your pickaxe to dodge and put your pickaxe through someone's brain. 
And once you start going into this, everyone goes into their timed patterns. Everyone, you know, stands around for five seconds, says a quip, then swings at you. The quips are all exactly the same. And it's ridiculous. The The melee combat is absolutely some of the worst part of the game. I, I just don't know why it's in there. Um, well, I, I will say that I had much a much better time of playing it stealth and just going up and meleeing people from behind with my pickaxe than I did engaging in open combat because once you did open combat, it was just long and boring. It was faster to do it by stealth. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I I had no strong feelings. I, I mean, right, this is sort of why I, right, I think this leads into why I think that it's, you know, kind of the perfect game is that I had a good time doing it and it did not stick with me whatsoever. Not just like the content of the game, but I'm just like, I enjoyed doing the things I was supposed to do, right? And I thought that the feel of some of the weapons, right? So like the feel of the, um, of the bow in particular um, was really great. So I enjoyed the combat a lot, but I enjoyed the combat a lot because of the sort of game feel of lining up the shot with the bow kind of over and over again. Um, the sort of iterative experience of it, uh, I really liked a lot. So, like, I think I had to do the melee for some of the, like, the armored enemies or something like that, maybe? Yeah. Right? Like, there's some enemies it forces you into doing it with. But I think I'd upgraded my bow uh, enough by that time to that you can do, like, the short-range stab with the arrow or something like that? Like, the dodge and stab? Yeah, that's definitely a thing. Yeah, so I think all of that sort of pulled together for me. So it never feel you know, it didn't ever feel weird or whatever to me. Chris, was your favorite weapon also the bow? Yeah, definitely. No, I had a sort of self-imposed challenge on myself that I would restrict myself to the bow and arrow and the pistol because going around with an assault rifle and a shotgun just seemed like bullshit. I only used the grenade launcher when it required me to. Yeah, actually, so this is one of the things that Brendan Keogh talks about in his blog post was he did not use the assault rifle. As soon as he got it, he, was, he just had this what is going on moment. And it's true. The moment you pick up the assault rifle, all of a sudden boxes of ammo just appear everywhere on the island. Yep. <laughs> and I had a similar moment with the grenade launcher because, you know, assault rifle, whatever, but when you get the grenade launcher, right before you get it, I had this moment of like, oh, I haven't been throwing grenades this entire time. You know, there's been like dynamite and stuff and Molotov cocktails, but there's just no grenades, and it was so cool to not have grenades. And then you pick it up, and Laura has this line about, oh, I'm coming for you now, and I heard that line about ten times, because in the very next section, I died over and over trying to use these stupid freaking grenades. Um, actually, so what difficulty were you all playing on? I play on easy because I'm horrible at video games. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not good at video games either. I think I just played on medium, whatever the you know the not yeah, hard was. I was on normal. Did you notice this thing where you know? So with the bow, one thing I really liked is you know you do these headshots and you get one hit, one kill. It's super satisfying. But towards the end of the game, where you have all these enemies coming at you, especially these samurai who are in what, a thousand-year-old armor? They're rushing you, and I have a shotgun. And I loved the shotgun. It was my favorite weapon. And I was like, yeah, bring it on, come on. And they took, like, four shotgun hits before they fell apart, despite the fact that they're, like, a thousand year old, years old and I have, like, an assault weapon. These guys are freaking bullet sponges in this game. Every single one of them. That's, I mean, at least that was, like, the satisfying thing about doing things by self. All of them went down in one hit, period. Right. Yeah. 
And that was the problem I really ran into with Uncharted was these guys would come at you in wife beaters and I was playing on easy and it would be like you'd shoot them 30 times in the chest and they'd just kind of like stop and then start running at you again. It was it was really frustrating for me because I don't really like shooting stuff, actually. I just like taking people down. And I agree, the stealth stuff was so great. But the interesting thing was that... I was able to get through the game because of how it varied up all those different encounters. You had some long-range stuff with stealth. You had some long-range stuff with stealth where if you weren't careful, stealth would kind of fall apart. You'd need to revert back to open fire. And I would play through that. I wouldn't do like an instant reset like I would on Dishonored. And then you'd have these closed corridors where everyone can hear you. Everyone knows you're there and you just have to rely on the shotgun, the assault rifle, and keep moving and take cover. And when that happened, you know, you were you were in trouble. Even on easy, it wasn't like, oh, you know, Lara's a bullet sponge, too. She can just hide behind a wall until the red jam comes back. If you were in trouble, you tended to lose. But I thought that the way that they mixed up those encounters, the way that they kind of highlighted the uses of each weapon was very good. I thought it was very professionally done. I thought it was um, a great video game in that respect. You know, it, it kept things moving, kept things interesting. Did you got, Did you have, like, a favorite level, a favorite set piece that really stuck with you? Mm. I really like the, like, the outdoor... So when you go down, like, when you come off the mountain and you're going down to, like, your team at the little boat that you're going to repair... Yes, That entire outdoor area, I really liked all of that. I don't really know what that area was called. It was but like, the was beach. That? Yeah, the beach, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was like like the uh, the survivors beach or something like that. Yeah. But yeah, no, it was just like after like like a huge long time where you're spent in really claustrophobic quarters. Suddenly, you're in this open environment. Nothing is trying to kill you. I'm like, fuck yeah! I'm gonna go and kill every single crab at the shoreline, right? <laughs> and there's actually two achievements for that. There's one with uh, killing a specific crab, and there's one with killing ten small animals, such as crabs. Do you have? I don't. I, I only. I, I think I, I killed. Didn't for achievements at all. I killed, I think, one animal in the whole game, and I think it's the one that makes you kill yeah. at the beginning. I was totally I like, kill don't kill animal. the animals, but then I got to that beach and I saw the crabs and I got, it's dinner time. Yeah, well, it's really interesting because the game makes you kill an animal. Yeah. Uh, and then what happens is you pull supplies out of its stomach and you get some XP. Oh, no, I'm, I'm bitterly aware. Yeah, it was really... Uh, you know, as much as the game was supposed to be about survival, there was actually no survival element. There was not even a scene of her eating it, I don't think. And so Cameron... Uh, for fire, I'm sure. Yeah, like, I'm sure that's how it happened. But the fact that it didn't happen was just a little bit... Her strip of meat, her one... Uh, someone, uh, Jeremiah on Game Bar, talked about that. <laughs> that you kill this giant deer and you get this one tiny kind of strip of meat. And, right. and Laura, you know, she's mm, very excited to eat that one tiny bit. I mean, yeah, that's why she's apologizing to, to the deer. Not that, you know, she killed it, but she's wasting it. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just leaving it to rot in the, in the floor. Well, there are plenty of wolves, right? They'll get it. I don't think they do that. I don't think they eat carrion. They I don't? Think that's thing. No, I, mean, I don't think so. Fairly, if it's a fairly fresh kill. And, like, once you kill that deer, there's, like, five freaking wolves just on the path. <laughs> that's oh. true. Well, if anything, you could put in the body pile. I mean, yeah. who's going to know? <laughs> <laughs> right. 
So, Spoiler alert, that whole river of blood at the end, that was actually all of Lara's kills. <laughs> <laughs> because she's the real monster. Well, she is the real... She, def- she filled a, literally an entire underground chasm full of bodies. <laughs> she's the monster. <laughs> so I actually did have a favorite set piece that wasn't the beach. It was, it was shortly after the beach, the funeral scene. Oh, no, I guess that's not. There's, there's a funeral scene, and then afterwards you're back in the woods, and it's night. And there's probably like nine or twelve guys uh, out in the woods, off doing their own patrols with just one of them with a flashlight, all scattered across the map. And I actually had a really hard time completing it, but I didn't mind playing it over and over again because it was just this huge arena. Uh, it was all about the stealth kill, and it was one of these things where if you triggered, if you triggered alertness from any of the guards, they released wolves, and you basically had to die. And I just, you know, I just had this really great time lurking in the woods hiding in the cover of these bushes silently taking out these guards one at a time uh to make my way up to to take them out for the last time and it was it really stuck with me just a really gorgeous area i went back to it after i completed it and it was just not nearly as cool Mm. without those guards and their flashlights just showing these tiny little beams as they got snuffed out one by one that makes me sound like a psycho doesn't it no no i think that was really i i I like that a whole lot um but i like the kind of metal gear solid 3 feel to it right that it's a Mm -hmm. kind of a puzzle that you have to solve in a very particular kind of way and i also like the design of the level that it that on the so when you enter from the woods there's the left side and there's a there's a cabin or whatever, right? There's a building, and then that's where you would path off to. And so you could kind of uh, beeline your way through it, and you could just go that way and finish the level. But there's a whole, uh, you know, the dark, you know, forest to the right. And yeah. there was a second level, right, uh, on top that yeah. you could zip line through. And there I thought that all of... or like hunting, yeah. hunting stills or whatever they're called. Yeah, and I thought all of that was really, really... I, I think that, the that you know, that's not my favorite set piece, but I think that's the best designed set piece uh, in the whole thing. And I wish there had been like two or three more of those, right? Like just sort yeah. of interspersed. I, I don't understand why the first area of the game isn't more like that. Mm-hmm. To kind of teach you about the different ways to, to hunt people down, to give you that satisfaction of of doing all that yeah right because it's i think that from a narrative perspective from a mechanical perspective right if you can when you when you do that area you feel very powerful as a player right you feel very competent at the game and i think setting that up at the beginning of the game that you can be very competent and then maybe having some of those more difficult shooter areas whatever i think that would have been a really nice contrast to have early on Really? All right. The Mary Sue actually wrote a great article about why the fearful hero is a good thing for video games. And they talk about the arc of Lara's growth. She starts off very vulnerable and then kind of grows both in armament and in the skills that you assign to her until she's able to take on these huge things. She gets the grenade launcher. At some point, you know, her weapons get taken away from her, but you get them back within short order. So uh, it's, it's a very... Uh, steady arc upwards there's not really that pit where you fall into it and at the same time it's also kind of trying to keep the murder to a minimum at the beginning of the game and ramping up to the huge mass genocide at the end of it so is that the kind of thing that that worked for you or is that the kind of thing where no i just really want to start off getting a feel for how the shooting worked how to how the hunting worked how you could take control of this area well i didn't 
there fear did not factor into it at all for me. Sorry about the in, inexcusably ac, uh, accidental pun there. Um, but I mean, I really enjoyed that article, Zach, that you mentioned from the Mary Sue, and I was thinking of that as I was going into this, that this was going to be one that would affect me powerfully because I was going to be so fearful and empathizing with Laura and all that stuff, but I didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, once it became clear to me that almost all of the scenes of endangerment or pain that she was going into would be, you know, non-interactive cutscenes or cutscenes that were only barely interactive where I had to react and do a quick time event at a certain point, right. it took, it takes an awful lot of the tension out of it, to be honest. It's just, I was waiting for the chance to press the button to get back on the ledge. So, and that's right. not interesting to me. That doesn't inspire any sort of tension in me and I think as a result I mean I was it was almost becoming sort of like a sick game for me in that I was waiting for the next chance for Laura to get hurt it's just like oh you're gonna turn around the corner and you're gonna get like stuck in a snare again or something like that oh god you just reminded me of that oh that was horrible it's just like I mean it's just uh, everything about how this game is structured really reminds me of the sort of crap that we studied when I was an undergrad and I was in like a film, like, not sorry, not a film. I was in a game writing class. It's just like, you know, just like, you know, the thread of pearls, you want to come here and then bam, cutscene and all that stuff. It's just like, I thought that stuff went out with like, I don't know, the original fucking Halo or something like that. I mean, this is... (laughs) This is some BS right here, mm-hmm. that every single time I'm sneaking up on an area, suddenly there's a cutscene, uh, you know, change, and she's bun- like bungling right into a room full of enemies, and I can't do anything about it. Right. I mean, there, there was nothing in there that made me fearful for her or for my game or anything like that, and frankly, the checkpointing and autosaving was so good that I didn't have anything to worry about about losing progress. Timmy, do you have anything that you want to add there? I mean, I have a lot. I, I, right, so what, what Chris is describing is like something, you know, this anticipation of the button press, right? So we're watching, you know, Lara, you know, parachute through the woods, right? And so there's going to be a moment where there's a, you know, a quick time event and you better navigate or you better hit the button or you're going to die. And uh, so Chris is sort of characterizing this for her as a, this kind of, uh, anticipation and that kind of removes things but for me it's the opposite it's an anxiety of knowing that that uh, i i'm being dependent on here that i'm gonna have to do this in order to properly play the game and the, and there's also the knowledge that when it comes up i know that i'm going to fail like invariably every single time that one of those very quick you know quick time events came up i failed every single one of them even anticipating even having this sort of anxiety about it so i mean it works for me right and i think they're designed in a certain way right to to make you to force you to fail them one time um yeah and that was kind of my problem with it was yeah, yeah. Your, your punishment for failure is is a snuff film and oh absolutely just uh, disgusting there's no way to avoid it especially the one i had the trouble with yeah. was, was the water slide and, and well i want to save yeah. discussion for that towards the end where we put a trigger warning on it because sure. it's just it's horrifying one example of the inversion of that arc actually that i really like is a nintendo remade metroid for the for the ds and at the end the original metroid they put in this section where you play as zero suit samus and the premise is after the events of the original metroid you lose your suit you go sneaking through some chozo ruins and then you reassemble your suit 
and you're, you know, you're hiding from enemies. You can't handle enemies until you reassemble your suit, and then all of a sudden you have all the power you've accumulated through the game, and you just tear through everything. The theme music is playing. It's so triumphant. It's so incredible. And it's kind of this arc where you're mechanically deprived of your vengeance, and then you get it back, and they just kind of give you a million things to destroy. And I think that's a really interesting arc. One thing that I find really interesting is that, especially the video games, um, especially ones that aren't as traditional as Tomb Raider, you know, you have to get good at the mechanics uh, in order to be good at the game. And as you get good at the mechanics, you often get rewarded with more ways to do damage. You know, Lara levels up her uh, shotgun skill so she can hurt enemies more effectively with a shotgun. But in response, the enemies become bigger and bigger bullet sponges in order to kind of counteract the damage. And so you end up with this thing where you should have been more powerful because you have all these skills, but because the enemies are also growing in power, you have this weird kind of, all right, I shot a samurai in the face three times with a shotgun, you know, and that's how long it took him to die. You don't really feel like, oh, I'm really strong for killing that supernatural samurai. You feel kind of weird that you can't kill it quite as easily. But I think the whole thing about cutscenes and, and QDEs is that was kind of their way of mechanically divorcing it, saying like, oh, before you have a gun, you know, you'll have to press Y at the right time. And I was also really terrible at it. I also kind of rolled my eyes at QDEs, but I think by the end of it, well, by the middle of the game where, okay, I'm actually going to jump back for a second. There was one cutscene in particular where Lara completely fails to use a gun to kill Matthias and end the chain of events about halfway through the game. And in response, she loses all her weapons. And that was an example to me of like, oh yeah, like have her try and kill this guy with a bow instead of the assault rifle I'm carrying. And so you end up playing without weapons, but you end up being able to do cool stuff like blow up gas vents. And I thought that was like a cool way of messing around what Lara could do and showing power in contrast to the end of the game where it's like, yeah, you have everything and it's still not going to be enough to take down a samurai. Yeah, but fortunately he has that huge exposed back that you can just, you know, pummel full of bullets. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> so, Brendan kind of, on his blog post, talks about how they did a great job of kind of switching up the camera angles to make sure that you were never doing exactly the same thing twice. I mean, they had, like, the burning down the house scene four or five times when you're escaping from a building, burn a burning building. I got pretty tired of that by the end. They always were kind of showing things from a different angle. You were doing the same things, but in slightly different ways. So I think they did a good job, again, of just kind of varying up what you were doing. Unlike Uncharted, where it's like, here's a wall, climb it. Here's a puzzle. <laughs> These are the symbols, solve it. No, I mean, I you mentioned the, um, the uh, underground... No, a toxic vent thing. Um, and that was one of my favorite parts of the game that wasn't the open beach. Largely because that was like one of the few times where they really seemed to integrate puzzle design into the main arc in a satisfying way, as opposed to just kind of sequestering puzzles to the side and the optional tombs. Which, I, yeah, I didn't enjoy the tombs, actually. They were all, they were all jumping puzzles. I, yeah. They were all about timing and stuff like that. I yeah, liked... no, I the the design, I think, of the first tomb that you can go to, where you have to, there's the wind going through the area, and you have to raise the elevator at the same time as the wind comes through, so it blows the platform and oh. you jump from the platform. That mm -hmm. is like baby's first puzzle. 
Like, I do not understand how that got through any kind of design rigor, right? It is literally just a process of, well, someone's going to have to do this 15 times or watch a YouTube video to figure out <laughs> what the exact sequence and yeah. the timing in between hitting these two buttons is going to be. And I, it enraged me. I really I, it's the it. only strong feeling I have about this game, <laughs> even now. Did you feel any sense of protectiveness or empathy or sense of inhabiting Lara's body at all? Uh, no, but I never feel that in a game. I like I I I have very vocally said right that things like immersion. Uh, I do not make any sense to me, right? Like that is a term and as a concept uh, is absolutely foreign to me. I've never felt like I've been a character, uh, right? I'll use the shorthand I, right, for something I did in the game, but there's mm -hmm. no, right, no, right? Like I was controlling this little figure that went and did things and has its own narrative, right? right. This little uh, polygonal person. But no, I in no way felt like that was me or that I identified with the person, in the game. How about you, Chris? Well, um, I did, but only in that scene that I talked about earlier with respect to the final battle and Sam screaming and all of that. Mm -hmm. um, that was really cathartic for me because it seemed like I was working through something important. Mm -hmm. Other than that, every single time that some bridge fell out from under Laura or she got stabbed or shot or chewed on, it's just like... I, I don't know, it was like halfway between just wanting to like skip it and get some popcorn, because this it's comedy at this point, how much she gets hurt. Oh, I would not say it was comedy, because I was yeah, really I don't think I would so either. squeamish about it, but one thing that Maddie Myers brought up in her Pace Magazine review was the way the camera lingered on Lara. Chris, did you, did you notice that? Hmm... I mean, if we're talking about whether it was a sort of a male gaze thing, I think it was only a teensy bit of that. There was that one scene where she's cauterizing her wound and the camera actually cuts away uh, instead of focusing either on her bare midriff or her face or something like that. And I found that, you know, fairly tasteful in the circumstances. Gaze is an interesting thing when it applies to games because it's not just about the camera, but it's also in how you know objects are designed and how they're placed and how they're lit and things like that. And I was actually going back through the game before this podcast, and I you know zoomed the camera around to take a look at her front, and I was noticing how you know sculpted against her body her tank top is. Oh. Um, and it's just like little things like that. Like even though it kind of avoids like some of the more like hilariously over the top male gaze stuff that we are so accustomed to mm -hmm. in a lot of games, I still think it's definitely still appealing to kind of the heterosexual male mindset. I'm not a heterosexual yeah. man, obviously, but that just seemed like if this was a movie and it really seems that it is it feels it, it it seems like it thinks that it is a movie a lot of the time if this was a movie we would say that it's male gazy yeah i really wanted her to put on a jacket uh, <laughs> right. maybe from one of like the billion people that she murdered they're all wearing clothes like oh, and uh body armor maybe huh <sighs> actually doesn't she get like a jacket in one of the dlc outfits yeah, oh, is that what that was? There's like a demolition costume or something like that. It's like a like um like a windbreaker, I think. Oh. 
Okay, yeah, I I wish I paid money for Laura to wear clothes. <laughs> um, I, I have looking... actually done that in a different game. I have paid money for a DLC outfit to get a character to put some clothes on. Was it Final Fantasy Thirteen? No, it was actually uh, Mass Effect 2. <laughs> for Jack. Jack, yeah. Yeah, one of the DLC costumes, she finally puts on a vest of some sort. So I'm like, <laughs> yes! It also covers her eyes, which I'm not fond of, because I thought her eye animations were delightful. But it's, like, if you have a shirt on, I am happy. I'm actually looking back through the screenshots I took of the game. Right, because like, the only way I'll ever remember anything from the game is to have some sort of visual record of it and so uh, i don't know if this was in maddie's in her paste review or if it was just something her and i were talking about but little animations that are between uh like areas where she would squeeze through two rocks do you know what i'm talking about oh, this happens yeah. over and over again that's so erotic right like that absolutely. is designed she definitely she, she goes from out and like does a little grunting yeah well she like comes from below and then stands up and arches her back backwards while putting her left arm behind her um, and right and it's this very kind of classic you know playboy pose and i thought that was really weird like i you know i took screen screenshots of it and i was like well when i write about this i'm gonna have to say something and then i never wrote anything so. <laughs> Yeah, actually, my, my my wife walked in while I was playing Tomb Raider, and Lara was squeezing between two rocks, and she just kind of, like, looked at the game, and she was, looked at me as like, yep, that's a video game, all right. It's like, yeah. <laughs> video games. All right, so no, I didn't really have a sense of, of inhabiting Lara either, although my wife plays Dead Space and uh, in the other room because I can't handle it. And sometimes I hear her, like, talking to isaac being like okay isaac we'll get through this together you know she very has a sense of attachment to isaac and i was wondering like oh maybe i'll have that sense of attachment to laura and i didn't so i i think it's very much a personal thing and i think i know justin kevern kevern uh -hmm. groping the elephant wrote about how he really identified with or, or felt in the place of laura and certainly some of the essays we will talk about in the trigger warning section also talk about their their empathy with lara but yeah that's not something i i felt other than she was in her room on the ship and like she didn't go to a drawer and like find a change of clothes or something that was really i really wanted her to just put on a jacket <laughs> well i you know i have this sort of weird relationship with empathy here right because i keep thinking about like so when you mention your wife in dead space i'm like well yeah with dead space i do have this sort of i when i i guess when i go into Tomb Raider, I know the end of the game is going to have Lara Croft being Lara Croft, right? Like, I, you know, she's not going to die in the third act. But maybe Isaac might, right? He might just get torn in two and then we have a new character for the latter third of the game or something, right? Like, like there's a certain precariousness that exists in a game like Dead Space. Dead Space definitely, you know, through through its horror tropes, right? Uh, sort of inculcates in the in the player, but not so much in, in in Tomb Raider, right? Like in the same way as like in an Uncharted game, we know that Nathan Drake's going to save the day, right? But right. we know we're going to end the game with Nathan Drake looking at the sunset and being like, "Yep, there's some more tombs to raid." Oh wait, I don't do that. Um, <laughs> and you know, and and Laura at the very end is very much she might as well say, "You know, I love raiding tombs. <laughs> it felt so good to raid these tombs." Um, that was, and so that maybe was really a witsworthy line when she goes, "Oh, I hate tombs." Oh yeah, yeah. Oh. You could have sold that, you know. You could have 
acted that out appropriately with the right amount of ham, but it was just weird. It's not she good. hates tombs, okay? She she hates tombs. All right. And then she came to love tombs. <laughs> yeah. So actually, speaking of, of Dead Space and horror, Tom Chick wrote a really interesting thing where he says, you know, Tomb Raider draws on a lot of the horror tropes. You know, it draws on mm-hmm. the Descent, Descent, whatever, whatever is the movie and not the video game, right. which is about yeah. women who go case spunking. I don't know. I can't. Yeah, they go. It's, they it's go actually a really it's a really uh, fun horror film, actually. And I actually thought of that one, too, going through this. And I wish it had involved more spelunking because that would have been a more interesting film mm-hmm. and I, I think at one point in that movie and you can correct me if i'm wrong because you've actually seen it uh there's also a river of blood where the protagonist rises up and must yep <laughs> yeah there is. thanks for reminding me of that but yeah then come to think of it that's probably what they were more directly quoting yeah and there's there's a very strong sense of horror kind of in the tropes at the beginning of the game, where the, the introduction of the Oni, for example, was actually really effective. I, I was really kind of creeped out by it because they did a great job of just not showing it directly, right? They didn't show the monster directly. It was kind of lurking in the shadows and doing horrible things. And you knew it was out there, uh, but you didn't see exactly what was going on. Where the psycho is chasing you at the beginning of the game. And to some extent, the gore in the game is kind of a play on on horror but isaac gets dismembered pretty horribly pretty often his legs get chopped off his arms get chopped off he gets like eaten by an alien asshole and when it happens to isaac i kind of roll my eyes if i'm able to watch but when it happened to laura i had a very different reaction and i'm not sure i can't unpack that reaction i don't know where that reaction is is coming from why in two games that are both kind of horror games murdering isaac is is one thing but murdering lara is another and that might be something we have to talk about later behind a trigger warning or something well i think part of it and and i don't think this has to be trigger warning is that that isaac you there's a a sound design that's involved with making that horrific so you hear this muffled scream as he's being torn apart or whatever and that's very uncomfortable i think but he doesn't have a face right we don't see his face Mm -hmm. contorting and pain or whatever but laura she's very right like there are unique animations for her face that are involved with dismemberment or murder in that kind of way and i think that's a huge huge difference Mm -hmm. in those two things right that that we are seeing not just a physical reaction right not not an animated uh, kinetic reaction but a facial emotional reaction to the Mm -hmm. sort of horrible thing that's happening and i think that's a giant qualitative leap in how we interface with it Chris, do you have any thoughts as a consumer of horror films? Um, see, the thing is, I, I mostly just listen to horror films, or at least I did when uh, I worked for a kid's game, because it made the hours more palatable to just have something <laughs> a little less horrifying going on in the background. Uh, yeah, I'll just, I could just go on about that. But I think Cameron is right that the sound design does play a big part in that and when I was going through this game like I said it's like I was so prepped every single time that she got injured and it was so over the top all of her injuries and all the groaning and the whimpering and all that that uh. that again like my only reaction is just like they're trying to make me empathize with her and that makes me all the more cynical of what they're doing mm-hmm. 
I, I felt like a lot of I know that Chris is probably familiar with this, but Zach, have you seen Jaws re- recently? I've never seen Jaws in my life. Okay, so Chris, but just I'm I'm sorry, I'm cutting you out of this for a second. But Chris, you know the 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 opening scene of Jaws, right, where we see uh-huh. the woman being killed by the right, and it's just her face kind of going back and forth, and she goes under the water. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I felt about every Lara death. Is that each one of those is this uniquely horrifying experience, and I think that you know, in Jaws, we're being manipulated in a very particular kind of way, and. I think that Tomb Raider is really doing that. So I don't I don't like have this sort of cynicism to it, I guess, because it's like sort of profoundly affecting for me. See, and I, right. just, well, Zach, I just, you need to I watch just hate Jaws. Spielberg films for that exact reason. <laughs> that they're so carefully designed in order to provoke an emotional reaction out of you. Sure. Uh, and something like Jaws included. Yeah, no, absolutely. Actually, the, the worst I ever felt for Lara was when she has that, that wound where she's going for the medical kit in Shantytown. And she's wading through sewage oh, with an God. open wound. <laughs> yes. And and to me that was that was disgusting. That was horrifying. Yes. And that was that was the worst part of it. But it's just like she's already taken so many kinds yeah. of different injuries. It's just like if she's not already like running a hundred and ten fever and swelling up to twice her size and <laughs> right. you know, getting like necrotic flesh around her various wounds, she's gonna be fine. No one ever gets infected in these games. <laughs> right yeah yeah and it kind of goes back to cameron's point that you know lara's not gonna die she's gonna mm-hmm. she's gonna look off into the sunset and talk about how much she loves raiding tombs right <laughs> um, unlike in dead space actually dead space had some spin-offs some dlc where where the player character does die mm. um, and it does kind of play around with that expectation a little bit more than tomb raider does so tomb raider starts off as kind of like a horror film especially with the oni and this idea that there's like this giant monster here and then as the game progresses you get more powerful and so there's one pop matters post in particular that says as you become more powerful the horror goes away and the horror element just disappears from the game and and so they show the oni very clearly and it's like this big person thing wearing a mask Mm -hmm. And as soon as they show it, all the horror disappears. The monster's just standing there in broad daylight. And then you fight one, and it is it is ridiculous. You dodge around and hit what is essentially a glowing weak spot on its back. Right. So <laughs> did you find kind of the interplay of horror elements and non-horror elements to be interesting at all? Did it kind of blow you by? I mean, like I said, like I was so cynical to all of this. To the extent that I was just really jaded to the entire... I, th- I definitely agree with you that the original kind of hinting at the Oni was really effective. but And this is common, not just of video games, but I think horror films too. That they go for the denouement really early. And then they never really recover from the lack of suspense that they lose in that moment. I mean, part of it is just, like, this whole budget thing. It's just, like, if we're going to design this big rig and this big creature, we're going to use it as much as we can. Mm -hmm. And we want to show people who are watching this that they're getting their money's worth with ooh-ah. I don't know. It's just, like, that's why I'd say, like, the older and the young and the, uh, the, the cheaper horror films do it better because they don't have, like, these huge budgets to spend on all these special effects and they want to give you, like, every eyeful of it. And video games, I think, because they come from a tradition of being able to put everything on the screen, because if you're if you don't, it's wasted because memory is so you know precious, or at least it was, 
that we don't have any sort of tradition of holding things back from the player. Mm -hmm. And we're all about inundating them with as much visual, digital pornography, whatever sort, doesn't even have to be sexual, that we can get away with. And so in that, res- in that respect, I think that Tomb Raider and kind of ruining the whole horror motif with the reveal of the Oni is sadly typical. Right. But I'm not sure what I could make of it besides that. Yeah, and actually it reminds me of Dead Space, where the first thing you see is a necromorph murdering someone. It's not hinted at. It's not kind of like open as a possibility. It just happens. You watch it happen. You're behind bulletproof glass, and then you pick up a gun, and you start shooting them as they come at you from all angles. There's not really any holdback to that. But I would say that there is a counterexample in Echo the Dolphin, which has a bunch of (laughs) horror elements, which it refuses to reveal until the very end of the game. That's not a very good counterargument, though. Well, I freaking love Echo, so (laughs) it works for me. (laughs) I wish more games were like Echo. I wish we'd been able to get that, you know, that spiritual successor or whatever off the ground, but I guess people just don't like dolphins anymore. Cameron, how did you feel about horror elements in Tomb Raider? I, I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm uh, I don't know. I don't feel qualified to, to speak on it, right? I played through the Dead Space game. I played through, like, a billion horror indie games to figure out how they worked. Oh, that's and right. I, I forgot about that. Yeah, no, I, I, I feel like I've put the work in here. I don't, like, I feel like the tropes of horror are deployed, but there's no real horror, right, actually being used, right? It's just purely aesthetic, right? So, yeah, right there. Yeah, that's all I have to say, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like wearing the mask of horror without committing to any part of it. So, yeah, I think it's interesting and cool, but not particularly productive in any real way. I have, a, I have another question about violence. Does, does Tomb Raider have any words to say about violence to you? Well, Matthias certainly does. <laughs> I mean, he thinks he's certainly being original. Well, I mean, if anything, I think there is more that it could have said about violence, but it didn't. The like the sexual layer of the violence there, that all the women you see who are not Laura or one of her female shipmates are corpses, because the cultists on this island have a habit of just, I guess, taking any sort of female shipwrecky and sacrificing her in the hopes that one of them is going to be a descendant of this queen. And in my opinion, that's probably the most interesting thing of the lore of this in that there's this entire island cult oriented around misogynistic, ritualistic murder. And it's sort of just kind of, oh, but it's just part of you know, the whole thing, and we're never actually going to talk about that. It's just going to be sort of like a subtext. And it's not even explored in a way that I think some horror is able to explore, like misogynistic violence, like a Jack Ketchum kind of thing. It's just, you know, kind of, oh, and by the way, they kill all the women. And it gives us a nice excuse to not build too many female rigs. You said this game made you cynical, Chris? Yeah, no. <laughs> right? <laughs> All right. Okay. This is going to be where we throw in the big trigger warning stuff to talk about physical abuse, threats of rape. Lara's development as a character. The game is supposed to be uh, a survivor is born. And in case you don't get that, it's written in big letters at the end of the game. So did you, did anyone buy into that, not buy into that, find that Lara had not changed by the end of the game? Well, I think that being a survivor is definitely a role that is played out in the game, but I don't think that Lara is actually the survivor in question. Or rather, I think she and Sam both fill that role in a way. Okay. 
Cameron. I mean, I, I don't know, right? Like, Sam didn't murder, a, you know, a million Sam, people. And, she and survived. Of, I mean, right, like, but I think that... Right, there are I mean, two specific I... sort of valences here of survive, right? Like, on one hand, there's the survival of the conflict itself, and yeah, right. that totally matters. That's, that is significant in and of itself. But there's also, like, the killed people to survive, killed animals to survive, got a big piece of rebar through your body, woke up in a body pile, fought a golem, right? Like, all these different things, that I think, are sort of qualitatively set these two modes of survival, uh, you know, apart, right? Yeah, that was fucking torture porn. Um, no, absolutely. I I don't have any right. Like the the particular kinds of violence that are shown in the game are right. disgusting, right? Like, and well, quite and on purpose too, I think. Right. And here's know. the thing, though: all the physical violence, and even the the scene of the even the scene where there's, I mean, very close to the starter, obviously, and that was the one that was first shown to us at E3 last year, and there was the whole kerfuffle over that of this sort of near miss. Uh, you know, rape slash sexual assault scene. Uh, even that didn't really affect me the way that Sam screaming in the final battle did because she's off screen the entire time and you just hear this blood curdling scream that's coming through just, you know, from the side, from, the, from your side speakers. Uh, and the mind, of course, fills that with you know, whatever it can. Uh, whatever sort of like creative imagination that it has. And in my case, especially in the context of, well, spoiler warnings inside a trigger warning doesn't make an awful lot of sense. So at that point, she's being, in my point of view, kind of symbolically raped. And that is all going on while you are playing as Laura, just gunning down one dude after another dude after another dude. And to me, that was the cathartic survivor moment in that, one person is enduring trauma while the other is fighting through trauma. Hmm. Sure. No, I think that's a totally... I, and I, I, well, okay, so, like, one, yeah, I think that's a great read. Um, but two, right, like, I didn't even remotely have that experience. Partially, I, right, I play on, like, a kind of terrible uh, speaker setup, so that might be involved, right, that everything kind of gets... Uh, compressed down into one kind of noise uh, it's also i died a lot during that <laughs> and i think by the time that i like actually you know made it through the whole process i was just so focused on you know this is where these enemies come from that i had blocked out any of the sensory kind of stuff so a couple of people have written articles saying that being able to play a video game where a woman is attacked and survives and and ultimately takes her revenge they found it very cathartic or they found it there, there has been like a couple of other things. Someone made a, a twine game actually, just about how the imagery of the game was being deployed, with and how that kind of made them feel. And those are really interesting explorations to me. But I don't really have anything to add to them. They right. exist. They're really important. I'm really glad that they exist. I don't know. Does anyone want to kind of talk about them? Well, I mean, I'd agree with you that I admire that they exist and that others have been able to explore it so thoroughly and to be so bracing and honest with how the game made them feel. I've spoken before about how cathartic the final battle set piece made me feel. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't come from a background of physical abuse very much in my family. So, uh, or any sort of like personal interpersonal sort of thing. So I can't really speak to that on the level of being a survivor, but it felt really authentic to the sort of feeling of, being female automatically makes you a potential target. That really seemed authentic to me, and I think that the game, especially in the final act, gets that across very well. Mm. 
but I mean, it's one of those things that, again, it's just like, I don't feel qualified to really drill further into that because I am not a survivor of sexual assault or any sort of physical abuse. Mm -hmm. Cameron, is there anything you want to? No, no, I have no, like, I don't even remotely feel qualified to talk about that. Right. Like on some, right. Like we will post uh, this list of links that we have, and I encourage everyone who listens to this to go then uh, read those links mm-hmm. um, because they all, right, they're all, I think all of them that you have, right, are speaking from this sort of personal experience parallel, yeah. right, yeah. Um, through this lens. I think that's great. I think that, that those people are speaking, and that's good. So that's my speech time <laughs> about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, go read people who, who are doing this kind of work that are not me. All right. Are there any any last notes that you want to leave on? Chris, have we convinced you of the <laughs> superiority of Tomb Raider as a video game's video game? I mean, what other video games are you playing that this one is in some way superior? I mean, I'm just, I mean, I thought, I mean, I'm really disappointed in you, Cammy, because I thought you had good taste. I mean, so the reason I say it's a, uh, that I think it might be the perfect video game is I think that it has kind of perfectly demarcated the space in which that video games can get to as far as narrative is concerned. I don't think that we can get much deeper or much better at telling stories than what Tomb Raider does. And it's not a great story, right? I'm, I'm not saying that the narrative is great, but I'm saying the sort of intermixing of cutscene with information told to you through, what do you call it, like speaking, you know, people talking in your ear, whatever, telephone, whatever that is. Voiceover? Uh, voiceover. Well, not just voiceover, oh, but like yeah, comlink kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, that kind of balance, the kind of acceptance of collectibles that sort of generate a world around you if you're into that, right? So Zach going back and finding all those things, that's that's great for him. I'll never do that, right? And the game's able to kind of balance between those two things very well. I don't think it beats you over the head with anything, but I think it is saying some significant things about uh, sexual violence, about the way that, right, that, that entire narrative as far as concerned. I think that it was fun. Right? Like, I had a good time playing it. I also think the narrative itself is fun, right? Like, it has these sort of peaks and valleys that kept me interested the whole time, right? When I played through Bioshock Infinite, there were times where I was like, well, I guess I gotta go back in the trenches and finish playing that game, right? Like, <laughs> but with Tomb Raider, I was like, yeah, I'm gonna play that tomorrow. I'm gonna, you know, get up tomorrow and I'll play with Tomb Raider for a couple hours and come back. And that's not something I feel a lot, right? I, I, Tomb Raider never felt like a chore to play. I never felt like I had to over-intellectualize it to enjoy it or under-intellectualize myself to enjoy it. I don't know. I just feel like it really, you know, set the, set the gave me a really good bar and then met that bar very well. Um, And so that's kind of right. I think you did that narratively as well as, uh, you know, mechanically and gameplay wise. Yeah. It could be. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely like I when I was playing, I was like, you know, this is like a classic video game. And yes, I kind of yeah. joked about, you know, it's a nine out of 10, which is the worst score in video games. There's great encounter design, really switch things around on you a lot, except for the, the QDs which, and the melee combat, which is like really finicky. And I found really difficult. It was like an Indiana Jones film, you know, you just kind of it wasn't yeah. pretending to be anything more than it was. It was just no, like, that is the perfect way of putting it, that 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 there is no. There is no pretension to being anything other than what you are given. 
It's like, you know, here's some here's some stuff to shoot, and we're going to give you some really cool ways of shooting stuff. Here's some stuff to collect, and we're just going to do everything right about the collectibles. You know, we're going to... Someone, and I refer to this article all the time and can never remember who wrote it, wrote a great thing about how to make the perfect collectible. And it's like, you know, make each collectible unique, and there was absolutely that. Give it, give it a name so that you can look it up if you can't find it, and there was pretty much that. Put it on a map so that you don't actually have to go scouring through this whole thing to find it. And between that and, like, the pulse ability, it really gave me this ability to explore and, and find stuff, just in case that isn't hardcore enough for people. They have the challenges, which are unmarked. You have to kind of really explore the environment to find them. I'm never going to finish them because of that. If you want to just play it like a shooter, play it like a shooter. It even has a multiplayer mode. If you want to play it like a stealth game, we'll mostly let you play it like a stealth game. And if you want to play it like an exploration adventure game, you know, blow through all the combat and then go back and, and do it. So I thought it was really solid. I enjoyed playing it. I'll probably play it again at some point in the future. I keep having this moment where I'm like, maybe I'll play that again, and then I don't do it. So I think that's actually kind of perfect, that it never actually, it, it makes me have the emotion that I want to be drawn back in, but it never draws me back in and then disappoints me in any way. There's something beautiful about that, right? That uh, An object that, that, you know, it's like a flower or something, right? Mm-hmm. That you want to look at it, but you don't want to, like, you know, go touch it. Hmm. <laughs> But yeah, no, I kind of felt, I also think that like there's something really interesting to be said about like the sort of, the parallels that it has with Spec Ops, but not like in any of their message, but in that they're both rebar chic games, right? What I'm calling rebar chic or rebar aesthetic, um, that they really depend on this like exposing the kind of crappiness of the materials that are in the world, right? So like everything is breaking, everything's falling apart. And every body is sort of reduced to this big red mass that you just pile on top of things that kind of looks like Play-Doh. I think that's really, really aesthetically interesting. And I think it's already going away, right? We, we had games that were, you know, Chris said earlier, that they were in development at the same time. And I think that there was, you know, some time two years ago where models were being passed around or being developed on forums or something where lots of people saw it and they were like, yes, we got to get these purple looking bodies, these lumpy purple bodies. We got to put these in our games. We got to put all this exposed rebar and shanty towns in our game. And I uh, love that part of it, at least. Yeah, like I, I mean, think even, that's even, a really even going interesting... back to something like, I mean, Midgar is my favorite city in a video game of all time. And I totally love the idea of what you're calling it, the rebar chic. And I would play in that sort of thing forever. Yeah. I, don't want to go and find a million fucking GPSs in that place. If I want yeah, to play geocaching, I can do that in real life. Yeah, no, collecting is not my thing, but Zach likes it. Zach I likes to collect a thing. Yeah. Collect the fun. Again, we'd like to give a big thank you to Zach for hosting and editing this discussion. As I'm well aware, it's not an easy task, and we're happy to host the end result. You can find the articles mentioned in the podcast in the show notes on our site at criticaldistance.com. And if you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. 
Thank you again, Chris and Cameron, for taking the time to share your thoughts. It's been a blast.